0: You're listening to Pair of Programmers. I'm Christopher Wolf.
1: And I'm John Fisher. In the show, we explore different topics that software developers encounter in their careers.
0: The format of the show is that one of us researches a topic, and the other reacts with insights from their experience.
1: Tweet us at PairProPodcast to send us topics you'd like to hear discussed.
0: Today's episode is about software testing. I've done the research this week, and John will react with his experience. To start off, uh, let's just sort of define what software testing is. So software testing is an investigation conducted to provide stakeholders with information about the quality of the software product or service under test. And so some of the different things that you might verify when you're doing software testing is that the software meets the requirements that guided its design and development, that the software responds correctly to all kinds of inputs that it performs its functions within acceptable time limits, that it's sufficiently usable, and that it can be installed and run in its intended environments. A study conducted by the National Institute of Standards and Technology in 2002 reported that software bugs cost the US economy 59.5 billion dollars annually. Uh, that's not that was a billion with a B? Billion with a B, yeah. Mm-hmm. Jeez. And they estimate that more than a third of that cost could be avoided if better software testing was performed. Before we dive into different uh, aspects of testing, I wanted to define two different concepts in testing. There's functional testing and non-functional testing. So functional testing is any type of testing that refers to the action a user might take uh, when using the software. So can the user do this? Does this particular feature that a user would use actually work? Um, usually you would find supporting documentation either in the requirements or in use cases or user stories. Uh, so that's functional testing. And and that,
1: that functional testing, that includes um, like unexpected scenarios like bad user input as well. Mm-hmm.
0: Yep, that's right. Anything related to the user. Uh, and then there's non-functional testing, which refers to aspects of the software such as scalability, performance, how does it behave under certain constraints or security. Uh, so basically kind of the behavior of the software via the systems that it's integrating with or running on top of.
1: And that includes things like performance testing and stuff.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so testing is a pretty big task. So what are some approaches that you might take? Uh, so the first approach is called static testing, and this is basically anything where uh, a human being is checking things by hand. So you can do reviews, walkthroughs, inspections, etc. That is called static testing. The thing that developers like to do is called dynamic testing. So under dynamic testing, executing programmed code with a given set of test cases is performed. So dynamic testing takes place when the program itself is run. Dynamic testing may begin before the program is 100% complete in order to test particular sections of code that are newly developed. So
1: Chris, is, is the difference between static and dynamic testing is not so much the difference within the test itself. It's more about when it's written and when it's executed. Is that right?
0: That's right. Yeah. I think static testing is usually someone using their mouse and keyboard and verifying things by hands. And dynamic testing is your more typical like test cases and test suites that are getting run, hopefully automated, but could be run by hands too. Gotcha. Okay, um, a couple more testing approaches uh, that we'll just mention in passing. There's one called passive testing, and under passive testing, the tester verifies the system behavior without actually interacting with the software product itself. Um, so that one I thought was kind of interesting, I'd never really thought of that before. Yeah, wait, how, how does that work? Yeah, unfortunately, they didn't really give any examples in the article I was reading. I mean, this is just Wikipedia. But I kind of think the point is like, imagine you had, you worked in some factory and you had some sort of machine, uh, with circuit boards and like whatever inside of it. And so a tester might come in and like open up a console and just sort of see like the logs and stuff. Like they're allowed to look at the logs and traces and just kind of mm. look, look for abnormal behavior without actually yeah. interacting with the system itself. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then the last one is called exploratory testing. The concept here is uh, rather than thinking in terms of you have QA testers and you have developers writing unit tests and thinking so concretely about those responsibilities in an exploratory testing approach, basically the people doing the testing, they're not told any of the requirements. They just kind of like learn what the software is supposed to do. And they just take it upon themselves to become representative users and, um, Yeah,
1: well, that's that's what I I was going to mention that because that's almost more like how an actual user interacts with a with a website. We often have this blind spot to our own software, Mm -hmm. even so, definitely true of developers, but testers even do too because they're testing like specific things and they just like go through the motions of the other stuff. But Mm -hmm. the real users are just kind of like clicking around, doing stuff they're probably not supposed to, or you know, all sorts of
0: strange things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, the sentence that it says here is, exploratory testing is a style of software testing that emphasizes the personal freedom and responsibility of the individual tester to continually optimize the quality of his or her work by treating test-related learning, test design, text execution, and test results interpretation as mutually supportive activities that run in parallel throughout the projects. So I think just reading it like it was sort of less formal set of responsibilities. Like this person should learn and appreciate the software, become one with the software, and continually (laughs) improve their testing of it, if that makes sense. Peace, man. (laughs) Um, Cool, so those are four high-level approaches, and then we're gonna dig into one called the box approach. So in the box approach, you divide your software testing methods into white box and black box testing. For white box testing, the point is to test the internals of the software. So you might do things like data flow testing, branch testing, coverage, path testing, that sort of thing. And so this might be where you'd write like unit tests, um, because you're trying to verify different aspects of the code. Um, You can also do integration and systems level testing under white box testing. But the point is that The tests that you're writing need to have some sort of understanding of the internals of the system. And then for black box testing, the perspective there is that the tests don't actually know how the internals of the system work. Uh, It's just checking inputs versus outputs. And so you write your test cases and you might test different things, like uh, you might use a decision table to know whether the inputs and outputs aligned correctly. You might do user story testing, use case testing. Um, that sort of thing. But the point is that you don't know how the internals of the system are working, just that you have a set of inputs and a set of outputs that you're expecting.
1: To, uh, To tie two of these things together that you just mentioned, is exploratory testing necessarily black box testing? I think so, almost, right? Because if you're exploratory testing, almost by definition, you don't know how the internals are working, right? Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. You're just kind of like
0: shooting from the hip. Right.
1: So did you find out anything about like which is most common?
0: Well, I think both of them are recommended. I mean, like white box testing, that type of stuff is testing the internals of your code and black box testing tests, you know, the user's perspective in some sense of your code. Like, You know, the user entered certain inputs. Did they get the outputs that they should get back? back? So you definitely want to do both. This is more speaking to like how you would organize and how you would think about um, your testing, right, yeah. but you would definitely do both. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So those are a bunch of different approaches. So um, we're going to talk about testing levels. As we talk about testing levels, we're going to talk about tests where you don't necessarily need a stakeholder to be involved. And then we're going to end with some levels that do require stakeholders be involved. So the first fundamental unit of testing is the unit test. So the purpose of the unit test is to test the logic in your code base, um, to test certain functions or certain services and that sort of thing. Often you'll find that something in your test case might rely on needing input or output that looks like it came from a certain service, but unit tests themselves shouldn't call services because they should just be focused on testing the functions themselves. Uh, We'll get into how you'll actually interact with services in a minute, Um, but the unit tests themselves should just stay focused on that small piece of functionality that they are trying to cover. Uh, So the way that you work around this when your functions are expecting inputs or outputs from other services, but you want to just write a unit test that focuses on that function's logic is you offer things called method stubs or mock objects or fakes, uh, basically just fake input or fake output that looks like it would have come from the service and can that unit test work with that um, input and output? Programming languages have support for unit tests built in, JUnit for Java, Python has test case and test suite classes. The point of those programming languages having all of that is that eventually you construct these sophisticated test suites and then you can run them in an automated way. So then you might have CICD processes where uh, as soon as you merge into a test branch or the master branch, um, some sort of automated process kicks off that makes sure that you didn't introduce any bugs with your code changes. Um, So that's unit testing. And so again, the point there is to just focus on that little bit of logic that that unit test is trying to cover. The next level of testing is called integration testing. And this is where you would actually test whether or not one particular module can successfully integrate and communicate with another uh, module. And so you can combine these modules together and test them as a group. Integration testing takes as its input modules that have been unit tested, groups them in larger aggregates, applies tests defined in an integration test plan to those aggregates, and delivers as its output the integrated system ready for system testing.
1: I've done in the past like unit tests, and then kind of the next level of testing for us is end to end tests. We don't do anything in between. Oh, I see. Do end to end tests fall into what you're describing as the integration test?
0: No, I guess not. I think it would fall under the next thing that I'm about to talk about. So end-to-end testing might be a synonym for system testing. So system testing is testing conducted on a complete integrated system to evaluate the system's compliance with its specified requirements. System testing takes as its input all of the integrated components that have passed integration testing. System testing seeks to detect defects both within the inter-assemblages and also within the system as a whole. Um so I think that might be more what you guys do with the end to end testing. Uh so you got all of your different modules all in one place and then you test them all together. I think um maybe integration testing might be like, well, I have the database deployed and I have my API deployed, but maybe I don't have my front end deployed yet, but I can still do some API tests while I'm waiting on the front end to get yeah, them done. Yeah, right whereas end-to-ends would then be like, okay, everything's there, the database, the API, the front-ends, et cetera. Let's, mm. let's roll the dice and see what
1: happens. Well, <laughs> let's roll the dice. Um, <laughs> even end-to-end testing, you can mock out API calls so that those calls don't actually go to the back-end and don't hit the database. But you're still testing like the end-to-end functionality of your UI application, right?
0: Um, I mean, I would think that would just fall under unit testing if you're, tr- if you're having to like fake the services. Uh, right. whereas yeah, the system testing is like, you've got it all out there. And so you might have some sort of, if you had a test case that was like a system test, what it might do is like open the browser, hit this URL, type its username and password into this login form and log in, mm. try to create an object, whatever your product is, where I think it would actually mm. step through all the exact same things a user would step through. Um, and then you might be able to monitor the API and the database to make sure that those records are coming in as expected. And then similarly, if there's any triggers in the database or the API is supposed to you know, mix in any data as a result of that submission, you would be able to monitor that. And then you would look at the automated front end response like, OK, does it actually include, include all that? So, yeah, system testing or end to end testing, I would think, should involve all of those things that are live and not mocked up and that you're just looking at real results. Okay, so those are all the different types of tests that you might do without any stakeholders being actively involved. The next testing level to talk about is called quality assurance testing. So this would be where you have a friendly QA team working with you to test the software that you've put up. Chris, what if they're not friendly? you are in for a bad time. They'll just make your life miserable (laughs) and keep projecting all of your Codes and you'll never make it to production.
1: Can can I um, insert one piece of advice here that I got from someone? I forget who, but I but I found really helpful.
0: Yeah,
1: someone recommended to me that like actually I was I think I was a tester at the time, and they said like make sure you check in with your developer occasionally, just like. Not just when you're reporting bugs, but just like in general, because mm-hmm. you don't want the developer to associate the tester with like, a oh, no, here comes Joe or, or whoever. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and the opposite goes true, too, for the developer, like check in with your testing team occasionally, just like you don't want every time you see them, you don't want it to be a bad experience.
0: <laughs> no, that's a great piece of advice. I'm definitely guilty of that. Whenever I see JIRA tickets get made by certain people, I'm just like, ugh. I have to deal yeah. with this, but yeah, no, that's great advice. Um, so the main role that a QA team helps with is functional testing where they kind of take on the role of a user. Like you were saying earlier, you know, as developers we kind of get tunnel vision focused on a particular feature that we've been working on and might not think uh, about all the different edge cases that come up as part of using that feature. Um, So that's where a great QA team can help out by simulating that type of user behavior uh, and making sure that the system works as expected. So testers don't necessarily need to know any programming languages. uh, So they could just be doing static testing, like we talked about earlier, static versus dynamic testing. So static testing is, again, someone just kind of going in their mouse and keyboard or their phone and verifying the software. That way, they might also write test cases So that happens where I currently work. Um, The QA team, under certain conditions, like we can tell them, you know, hey, this API produces static results from this data file. So we can give them the data file and describe the process of how that API works against that data file. So then they can write test cases to validate that API response. So QA engineers don't necessarily have to be software developers, but uh, it's really great when they can be, because then they can start writing automated tests as well to verify functionality. Right, right. Um, Other types of tests that they often do is smoke testing, and that's literally just kind of kicking the tires and looking for issues that probably shouldn't have made it all the way to QA, but it's a good first step to keep the developers honest. Take a first stab at it and say, okay, like, this is embarrassing, you shouldn't have put this up, go back to the <laughs> drawing board, or like, okay, this it's like 90% of the way there, so we'll keep going. The biggest one that QA teams also do is called regression testing. So the point of regression testing is for QA to remember all the different bugs that have ever happened in a piece of software, and make test cases or test plans about those bugs. And so that way, as new code keeps making its way into the product, Um, You can keep track of whether those old bugs come back or not, which does happen. Uh, Sometimes, maybe as a matter of configuration, certain code is dead for a moment, and then it gets turned back on, and that bug gets reintroduced. Uh, That could be one way old bugs come back to life. Regression testing is typically the largest test effort in commercial software development due to checking numerous details in prior software features and even new software. This is actually really important. Uh, If you've rewritten the software, you can still use those old test cases to verify that the new design has the same functionality as the prior design. That's that's a great point, but
1: easier said than done, right? Like a lot of times when software is rewritten, even if you're saying, okay, I have the exact same requirements and like the page needs to look and feel exactly the same, like the underlying structure of the code might be different. And so that, that's going to throw off your test though, right?
0: I think it depends, yeah, on what you're testing. So like we talked about system testing, how you might have like a really sophisticated program that's like opening a browser and logging in and looking for some authentication form. Like for sure, those tests will break pretty easily. But maybe you kept the API design the same, but you switched from Python to Node. Uh, hmm. and so you didn't want to rewrite the front ends because the front ends already got a contract that it's looking for then you would be able to keep those old test cases because it's still Mm, HTTP and it's still supposedly the same API design, Uh, and so those uh, regression tests can verify that. Okay, I think I'm going to end with that for quality assurance testing. So at this point, um, you've worked internally to do your unit tests, your integration tests, your system tests. You've worked with your QA team to do QA testing, and you think things are looking really good. So the next step that you would take is called user acceptance testing. And so this is where the end customer or um, a product owner, etc., finally gets to look at the software. And the point is that a subject matter expert, preferably the owner or client of the solution, gets in there and takes a look and provides a summary of their findings. It's important that the software that someone is testing in UAT is nearly identical to what you're gonna put into production because otherwise what's the point? Why would you have them test something that isn't production like? I think I think the the reason why they mention that is to make sure you do UAT last. UAT acts as a final verification of the required business functionality and proper functioning of the system. I was gonna I was gonna ask about that, and, and maybe you'll bring
1: this up in a second, but where does P test fit in?
0: Um, Is p test performance testing? Uh, Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Okay. Yep, that'll be the last level that we talk about.
1: Really? Okay. So that comes after user acceptance testing.
0: Um, According to Wikipedia, yes.
1: (laughs) Okay. Yeah. This is right. So this is one of those questions I think that many people have different opinions on. But that's that's good to know and interesting that that's um, what what you found.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think they could be done in parallel. I think the reason why it was presented in this order is because I could see, like, well, it was in UAT, and someone rejected something, and they asked for it to work a different way. And in the meantime, you started that next level of testing, and that passed for the conditions as they were. And so if you do those two things in parallel, and then you re-engineer that feature, you might introduce a performance problem. So that's why I think you would do that next level last, because you want the code to stop changing before you move on to um, the next level of testing.
1: My previous manager was having this discussion with me, and and he treated it like uh, it was a right or wrong answer. He was like, do you know where performance testing comes in the pipeline? And I was like, "Um, I don't know, after functional testing? And he was like, nope, it should come after development, uh, between development and, and quality assurance testing.
0: Really? Which, okay. Hmm.
1: Yeah, That's right. I was like very surprised. I thought about it, and it makes a little bit of sense, but... I mean, it's again, it's one of those things that there are pros and cons to to yeah. uh, any decision you make there.
0: I mean, I could see um, as part of your your API testing, if you were doing like integration tests like that, I could see part of your test case specifying that an endpoint respond in time, and so mm-hmm. maybe simple performance tests like that could happen early. Maybe they should happen early to address those performance problems or raise them early so that they can be addressed and noticed by the developer earlier, but yeah, it's last in Wikipedia. (laughs) Yeah, okay, cool. So I think once you're in UAT, it better be pretty rock solid, and at this point you're just testing whether or not that software you've spent months, maybe even a year building, is actually useful to the user.
1: Yeah, I feel like this is where (laughs) <laughs> um, differences in understanding about the requirement come
0: up. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, I didn't mention this earlier, but there was a paragraph that said, not all software defects are caused by coding errors. One common source of expensive defects are requirements gaps, i.e. Yeah. unrecognized requirements that result in errors of omission by the program designer. So business people not telling you exactly what they want correctly. And Yeah, it's
1: business's fault.
0: Not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> Cool, so that's it for user acceptance testing. The next level to talk about is operational acceptance testing. Operational acceptance testing is used to conduct operational readiness of a product, service, or system. OAT commonly tests the non-functional aspects of software testing. So we talked about functional versus non-functional before. Functional being anything related to what the user is doing, which is usually what your QA and UAT people address. Non-functional being what's the software behaving like. You know, is it freaking out because it doesn't have enough RAM or CPU, that sort of thing? Um, so different things that might fall under operational acceptance testing include performance, um, recovery testing. So, you know, if the database went down, how fast can we get things back up? Resilience testing, security testing, scalability, stress, volume testing, endurance testing, etc. So really pushing the software to its limits doing destructive things sometimes. I think I saw somewhere in here uh, something about destructive testing where they might actually delete records and see how does the software react to things like that. So those all fall under operational acceptance testing.
1: One of my friends told me that well, one of the like big uh, West Coast IT companies uh, does something they, they call Chaos Monkey. Where they just like, yeah, like you said, like intentionally break shit, whether it's deleting records. Yeah,
0: I think it's Netflix. I think I remember reading about that on Reddit. But yeah, basically that is operational acceptance testing. Um, you mentioned p test earlier, so performance testing would fall under this category. But all sorts of things, um, performance, security, scalability, you name it. Anything pushing the software to its limits would be considered operational acceptance testing.
1: So so if an issue is found here, does that send the test back all the way back through the pipeline?
0: I mean, it definitely goes back to a developer, or it might become like a discussion. Like, maybe it is performing poorly because of lack of resources. Now, someone could argue, like, well, the code shouldn't require that much RAM or CPU cycles. Mm. Um, but I think at the end of the day, considering how cheap hardware is becoming lately, uh, it's not unheard of, I think, to just throw an extra... Eight gigs or 16 gigs at a system to keep the system working as desired. Um, So I think it it can go back to the developer, but I think it's becoming more and more easy or lenient. I don't know exactly what words to use here, but yeah, I think depending on the issue, a systems change could occur to alleviate the issue too.
1: But based on what you just said, I I wanted to add a word of caution that depending on the issue, if it's a performance issue, Throwing more hardware at it may not necessarily fix the issue. It may be something mm, that... Yeah, sure. Like, if your uh, program is expected to um, run in, like, O of N time, right? Like, as the input increases, the the expected runtime is supposed to increase linearly, right? Mm-hmm, right. But it's actually, like, 4 to the N or something, right? Like, some, <laughs> something ridiculous where you're right. just going to, like, blow out your servers no matter what. Yeah. Um, like... Throwing more servers at that isn't gonna isn't gonna fix the problem. So a lot of times you just need to really go back and look at the code and see what's going on.
0: Yeah, great word of caution and good job throwing some computer science lingo in there. Um, yeah, yeah, with yeah, the school.
1: Woo! <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, we're gonna talk about other types of testing to just kind of name a few more. Uh, you might have to do compliance testing. So this really comes up with government contracts. Some examples would be accessibility testing. So your software has to be in compliance with standards such as the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, Section 508. But basically the point there is that, especially with government software, I mean, you should make all of your software accessible to people with disabilities. But for government contracts, you're mandated to do so. You might have subject matter experts in Section 508 compliance or disability compliance that will also evaluate your software against those standards. Um, We've got A-B testing. So this isn't necessarily like testing the quality of your software, but it's testing the quality of the business judgment, I guess, behind the software. And so the point of A-B testing is that you provide a certain set of users one perspective of the software and a certain set of users another perspective of the software, and you measure the performance of those differences. So imagine in the very simplest of cases, maybe you've got a software that sells things to people. And so you have some sort of call to action that says, hey, sign up for this service. So you might have a button in that call to action, and maybe you want to A-B test whether a red button performs better than a blue button. And so you distribute that A-B test to different users, and you measure you know, how many sales am I getting when the button is red, and how many sales am I getting when the button is blue, and that's called A-B testing.
1: Yeah, well, I just want to say I, I love this idea and I've been trying to uh, push this on the different teams that I've been on, it doesn't necessarily have to be like a 50-50 split either. If you're nervous about rolling something out because you think there's a a chance that something's going to go wrong, then you can roll out those changes to just like 1% of your population uh, and make it configurable so that once you get more comfortable, then it's like, okay, like, that seems to be working. Let's bump that up to 5%. And then, you know, once you're, totally confident, then you'd be like, oh, okay, let's actually roll this out to our full user base. Mm-hmm. And then you just set that parameter or configuration, or whatever, to 100%. And now you've completely released your code in a, in a safe way that lets you kind of monitor the user feedback as you go.
0: Mm-hmm. Nice. Okay, and then the last one is called output comparison testing. And so in this one, what you do is you take different snapshots of data. So that could be either text or screenshots of the UI, etc., And then, as times change, you can uh, do a differential against the text or the screenshots, whatever your snapshot is. Basically, it's kind of like a signal, like, hey, something changed. Verify that those changes either were intentionally produced a diff that looks good, or, whoops, that was a mistake, so let me go back to the drawing board on that. Those are all the different uh, approaches or levels or whatevers that you could ever want to hope to know about testing. Um, so John, you had asked me to research a particular question, and the question was, who is responsible for writing the tests? So I guess given all of that, uh, we've said here today, I think it really just depends on what strategy, what testing strategy you have, um, available to you at work. It's very much up to the developer to write unit tests, uh, integration tests, that sort of thing. If you've got a QA team that does know how to program and are able to write test cases. You know, maybe they can test your APIs for you. Um, but then finally, like your product owner can definitely be writing your acceptance tests in plain text. Um, so I think it's a shared responsibility. You said this was particularly timely for you.
1: Yeah, I was asked. If you had your cake and could eat it too, or you know, in like a utopia. What would our testing ecosystem look like? Oh, okay, and... that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And to me, that is like such an open ended question. I was like, "Wow, like, where do I even start? Because mm-hmm. there's, there's the question of when do you write the test? Is it at the beginning of your sprint? Is it at the end of your sprint? <laughs> um, is it as you're doing the development during your sprint? And then, and then there's all the question of like, when do you execute the test cases? Is it during build time? Is it like when you deploy to the development environment? Is it done at build time? Is it done like maybe once a night? And a lot of things influence that. Like how long are you expecting your test cases to take to run? If it's like if it takes twenty minutes to run to a bunch of end-to-end test cases, you don't want to wait twenty minutes every time you're trying to test that something works in development environment. Or like even you don't you probably don't want to wait twenty minutes um, just to generate a new tag to deploy to to a functional testing environment to a to a quality assurance environment. So yeah, all these all these questions came up. Also, like, uh-huh. I think it probably makes sense for the developers to write, especially for unit test cases. I think developers should be writing those. It is just, like, a number of questions that I had to try to figure out and deal with. Sure. I think this conversation has helped a lot, but I'm still very confused. <laughs> <laughs> like, so much of it is just up to the implementer and is dependent on how change management happens uh-huh. and... And what sort of applications you're developing, all, all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I still have a number of, of questions that I think I need answered. But um, what you what you said has been really helpful. Nice.
0: Oh, well, glad I could help. Yeah, I think uh, the culture, I think that's something that a lot of people don't always appreciate is how the culture of the business can impact the software development uh, that happens there. So that was a good, uh, good insight. Yeah. Um, each of those different levels we've talked about where tech stakeholders get involved. Yeah, I guess that is one thing to note is that it does require that infrastructure. Um, so for QA testing, you might have a set of QA servers. For UAT testing, you might have a set of UAT servers. And then for operational acceptance testing, you would have a suite of staging servers that look like production, have the same amount of RAM, same CPU. Uh, That's to minimize any types of performance differences between the two environments, um, and that's where you can do your operational acceptance testing. So, John, I think that's I think that's a wrap. Cool. That was that
1: was awesome. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Thanks for hanging in there with me. I know that was a long one, but it uh, oh, a long one. Turns out, software testing is really hard, and there's a lot to it. So,
1: <laughs> that's what I'm going to tell my manager. He's like, John, why is this <laughs> broken? I'm like, software is hard. <laughs>
0: Well, listeners, hopefully you enjoyed our episode today on software testing, and we'll talk again soon. See ya. See ya.